September is in full swing here in the capital region. There's a tinge of fall in the air, but we're not there yet. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. Why in the world did the city police force wait two months to cite these people for their alleged actions during this rally. We'll hear about a house for sale in Lansingburg that once played host to Gangster Legs Diamond. Oh, and also it's allegedly haunted. When we were in the house, both uh, Michelle and I heard this, not a creak, which you would think from walking on floorboards from the 1890s, but a long, like, streaking sound. And Christy Gustafson Barletti weighs in on a recent column she wrote about kids wearing masks at school that drew an impassioned response from readers. And I'm really, I'm just disappointed. I'm disappointed in us. I'm disappointed that kids have to wear masks. And I'm disappointed for everybody. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We're here with Times Union editor Casey Seiler once again to go over the top news of the week. And let's start right here with COVID-19 updates. Uh, Positivity levels are back up to where they were in February. Uh, Can you give us the latest on what we're hearing from local leaders, what we're hearing about the numbers? Just give us a summary. It's a bad news, good news story. Unfortunately, most of the news is bad. As you noted, the number of positive results are back up to numbers not seen since, you know, uh, towards the end of of the winter, which which was, of course, coming off of the January peak, not only for the region and the state, but for the nation as well. Now, the good news is, is that that January peak was in the very early days of immunization. And of course, now, while hospitalizations and new infection numbers are up, because of the vaccination, deaths are still significantly down, as Bethany Bump reports. But the eight counties that are sort of in the greater capital region, uh, you know, earlier this week, were experiencing uh, average daily case numbers cumulatively of more than than 300, which is up about 16% from just two weeks uh, earlier. And that, for comparative numbers, you have to go back to February 11th. It's still alarming. And it's a reminder that the Delta variant and vaccine hesitancy means that COVID-19 is still very much with us. Certainly. Now, sticking with state news here, uh, we've talked before about the very complex issues with the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. Tell me what happened this week with Jay Cope and the Attorney General. Yeah, it was a thrill a minute. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Jay Cope voted, a majority of the commissioners voted to refer to State Attorney General Letitia James Uh, for potential investigation, the matter of a 2019 leak from Jacob's 
closed-door deliberations to former Governor Andrew Cuomo. And uh, an investigation ensued by the Inspector General's office that was seen um, in many quarters, including my own and the editorial page of the Times Union, to be rather lackluster. So Jayco, two weeks ago, voted to hand this matter off for investigation to the Attorney General, as well as an investigation of the Inspector General. So a classic investigation of the investigators. On Monday evening, I believe it was, uh, the Attorney General sent a letter to Jacob's top staffer and said, thanks for the referral. I can't use it because this vote did not follow Jacob's own rules for how you can proceed with an investigation, which is Byzantine, but suffice to say, two of Cuomo's Democratic appointees would have had to have voted for this investigation in order for the referral to be made or for Jacob to mount its own investigation for that matter. So Tish James said, thanks for the referral. I can't do it. If you want to vote again, go ahead. And so on Tuesday at their regular meeting in open session, which was nice, Jacob voted on this matter again. Governor Kathy Hochul had named a Cuomo appointee to serve as acting chair of Jacob, and the measure passed. In other words, the revote with the proper, you know, vote composition passed. And then, of course, uh, Kathy Hochul, who named this commissioner to serve as the acting chair, took a great deal of criticism and had to kind of uh, hastily announce through her press secretary that, oh, no, 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 he was just doing it for this one meeting and he's at the door. You won't see him again. This is all really complex. And I apologize, Jess, that this is going on very long. But the bottom line is that the concerns of legislative leaders, as well as Governor Hochul, that Jacob is a very poor enforcer of ethics laws in the state is becoming a louder and louder noise that Hochul is now saying, in addition to naming her own appointees, as opposed to just recycled Cuomo ones, she says she is going to take seriously. And lawmakers, especially progressive lawmakers, are saying, we're not going to wait. We're just going to move ahead to uh, reform Jacob in the short term and scrap it and replace it altogether in the long term. Wow, I feel like we need one of those uh, when a bill becomes a law style songs to explain this whole saga. <laughs> yeah, if somebody could please just do one of those, you know, Bob Dylan subterranean homesick blues, you know, montages where I'm just holding up cards explaining all this, that would be very helpful. We may well see that. All right. So more for more on this uh, ongoing saga and all other capital news, visit the Capital Confidential section of TimesUnion.com. All right. So uh, we've done a lot of reporting in the past few months about flare ups between police and social justice activists in Saratoga Springs. Uh, and in the last few days, there's been quite a bit of news on that front. So can you give us kind of a picture of what's happening there now? What's the latest? Yeah, there was this very ugly scene outside of a public meeting in Saratoga Springs just last week when police were basically hauling in activists who were protesting outside of City Hall, I believe it was, and citing them for alleged misdemeanor wrongdoing 
that occurred fully two months ago at a Black Lives Matter rally on the main drag, basically, in, uh, in Saratoga Springs. That was a very bad scene, these arrests last week. They continued this week. So far, 10 people have been charged related to this, um, this July rally, most of them for misdemeanor charges that are, as our editorial board noted, the, the legal equivalent of a traffic ticket. And many of the activists have said, number one, this is a violation of their First Amendment rights in some cases. And number two, why in the world did the city police force wait two months to cite these people for their alleged actions during this rally? They theorized that the city was waiting until after the track season, which is, uh, of course, the major draw of the Saratoga tourism industry, uh, was over. You know, the track track season ended last week and only now is sort of... uh, as the activists see it, taking reprisal against them. But it's another twist in what has devolved into an exceedingly bad relationship between activists in Saratoga Springs and the police force. And um, unfortunately, city officials are in the main standing on the sidelines and not commenting on this. Of course, we'll be following this as it continues uh, to develop here. One last topic, and in the immortal words of the great Monty Python, and now for something completely different. Uh, Just four words here to introduce it. Naked in a cave. Yes, thank God, a change of topic. How Caverns has an evening where people are invited to sign up, show up, strip down, and walk through the very beautiful uh, environs and climatologically very uh, static environment of How Caverns. This is an event that organizers say is meant to really promote body positivity. A couple of years ago, Brianna Snyder, who is a freelancer who has written in the Times Union, did a, a first person story about this. And she really said it was a fantastic event. It was a very funny piece. It was also a very moving piece. And Wendy Libertor, without doing a first-person story, previewed this year's edition of Naked in a Cave, which, of course, has bounced back after being on hiatus for the pandemic. And that includes a link to, to Brianna's outstanding story. I recommend that people check out both of them. Yes, it's a wonderful story. Visit timesunion.com for more. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We will talk to you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. All right, moving on. Last week, Times Union writer Christy Gustafson Barletti wrote a column that incited one of the largest reader responses we've seen in a while. The topic, a controversial one for sure, kids wearing masks in school. I caught up with Christy to talk more about why she wrote that column and how readers responded. So you recently wrote a column. The title of it was, I don't want my kids to wear masks at school. And not surprisingly, it brought out a lot of feelings among readers. There was a lot of response to your piece. Just tell me about the piece and why you wrote it. Right. So at the end of June, at the end of last school year, I said publicly, look, 
don't complain that your child has to wear a mask for another week or two at school. It was very hot in June. I said, because we just have two weeks left. No big deal. We'll hit the summer. And next year, meaning this school year, September 2021, everything will be normal. And I was wrong. And everything is not normal. And my children and everyone's children in New York State are wearing masks to school. And I don't want my kids to have masks. You have to wear masks. But it's not because I'm an anti-masker or anything like that. It's just because, to me, the mask represents a failure for all of us as a society. It suggests we couldn't support one another, we couldn't get it together. And then here we are with the record number of infections again, hospitalizations, children in hospitals, things like that. And I'm really, I'm just disappointed. I'm disappointed in us. I'm disappointed that kids have to wear masks. And I'm disappointed for everybody. Give me some of the highlights of the, the comments and the notes that you received from readers. Well, some people said, I would say the biggest supports were people who were teachers or who had family members who were teachers. And they said, thank you so much. Look, my so-and-so is a teacher, but he or she is still in a high-risk group or this person, or I'm a teacher and I hate having to kind of not fight with the parents, but debate this with the parents or whatever. And, and seeing your article makes me realize, okay, this is happening. And then the other one was so many people wrote me and said, I feel the same way. I know the mask is the right thing. I have my children wear a mask, but I'm so disappointed we are here. And I would say those are the three categories of positives that I got. Now, the negative emails, as you might expect, there were most of them were somewhat respectful. Some, of course, offered personal attacks on my writing, my journalism skills, my appearance, all those fun things that people like to target. And then that happened. That had nothing to do with the column that you wrote, obviously. Absolutely nothing. Like, you need more sun. You're too pale and pasty. You're whatever. You're this. I'm like, okay, that perhaps that's true, but it has nothing to do with my, what I wrote. So whatever. But anyway, you know, that happens. That's part of the public job. So, but the, the, I would say the overwhelming thing in the negatives were people arguing why they didn't uh, choose to get the COVID vaccine, which is fine. My, but my article wasn't about that. It was about children wearing masks. I wrote back to some people and I said, well, what did you decide for your child at school with masks? And then there was either silence or people would say, well, well I don't have kids at school, but I don't think kids should have to wear masks or I don't have any connection to school. I'm not a teacher. I don't have anyone who works in school but kids shouldn't be wearing masks because it's, you know, it's repressive and stifling and all that kind of thing. And I really do believe this is one of those situations where unless you have children in school or have children, or you are somehow working in a school associated with a school, you can have an opinion, but it doesn't really matter (laughs) what your opinion is. So there was a lot of that. And then there was a lot of, well, I went to this and I did that and I'm fine. So therefore children will be fine and everybody will be fine. Now, you also encountered and, you know, as you've said, we've encountered this regularly on, you know, a- any outlet is going to encounter this these days is a lot of misinformation that people are throwing out there very publicly on, say, our Facebook page or our Twitter feed or wherever. Like, how are you processing that? How do you deal with that? So I think in the beginning, because obviously COVID's been going on around here for what, 18, 19, 20 months. In the beginning, I would get very frustrated and I would sit there and back check and send them links and say, here's why you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. But I have learned that when people believe something strongly, you're not going to change their mind. So I think it's to say, Hey, look, you can stand where you stand. You can have your opinion, but here are links to maybe I'll give a link to the CDC or things that are facts that you can't argue with. Like here are hard numbers that you cannot debate. You can't debate a number of hospitalizations or people in the ICU, which obviously is a hospitalization, things like that. You can't debate a number of positive cases. You get to a point where you realize they just want an argument 
and they want to fire you up and they want to, you know, create dissent. And I'm, I'm not going to get into that. So do you have any specific comments that you thought were really impactful? Well, I don't know about impactful, but I would like to, I, I think that these two probably Memorable? represent the two. Yeah. Oh, I want to say, because I think these two represent the two different sides. So one is, hi, Christy, you're spot on with your article on kids and masks wearing in schools. You covered what needed to be said from top to bottom. Thanks. So it's short, simple. I mean, who doesn't like to receive compliments, right? <laughs> it offsets all the people who are angry and telling me I should not have a job and I've sold my soul. So there's that. The negative ones are a little longer. Ms. Gustafson, I'm compelled to respond to your article because it's just not based in fact. First, there's well over a quarter of the population that do not want to mask or get the jab. It has nothing to do with spite, contrariness, or because we don't like to be told what to do. Because in my column, I did reference people not liking to be told what to do and that that was why they were opting out of a mask. Then the reader said, regarding masks, proud she. It's always fun when they play on names and name call in the middle of an email. Started out by saying masks wouldn't do anything to stop it. Then flipped to yes, and we all need to mask up. Then double mask, and then only the unvaxxed need to. And then nope, sorry, back to everyone. And on and on it goes. Last year, there were a lot of people, and there still are, who are so scared of this virus, they rarely went out in public. Of course, cold and flu rates were down. If you took the time to read this, thank you for doing so, DH. It was a very long email, and that's only part of it. And it did include a photograph of her television on in her living room on Fox News. The other thing, though, I will say a lot of people had a problem with was the headline. Mm -hmm. And it went both ways. There were people who read the headline, which is, Christy, I don't want my children to wear masks in school. Some people read it, got excited, right? People who are anti-mask were like, yes, she's going to agree with me. Let me read this. And then the people who are in favor of masks in school, which I am one of those people, they were disappointed because they were concerned that people would only read the headline, assume that someone like me who has a voice and a platform is against masks and then would make more people feel that way because they would say, well, Christy from the Times Union feels that way. Well, no, I don't. And I don't think I can bow down to people who only read the headline. But I also understand the point of how people who only read the headline may have perceived the story to be one way when it was another. One final thought here. Can you kind of sum up what you want people to take away from this whole event? You know, the article, the headline, the comments, like people who are seeing this on their Facebook feeds or their Twitter feeds or are on timesunion.com. Like, what do you want them to take away from this and this type of article? Here's my thing. I think I just want people to think again. I don't need people to agree with me. I just want you to consider your position. If a mask is what's going to break you or bring you down to me, that just feels irrational. And, you know, we accuse people of being too sensitive or, or being snowflakes or whatever it is. But to me, that's sort of the actions people are exhibiting when this is what is so tough. And one of my readers who was an adopt, adoptive parent put it perfectly. She said, it's really offensive when parents say that my child will be traumatized if he or she has to wear a mask. Because she said, you don't know what real trauma is for children. I know what real trauma is. I am raising a child with real trauma and who's experienced real trauma. And when you say that, that that's an insult to everyone who's actually lived that or is loved someone who's lived that. And I think that's a good point. Before you throw out these strong adjectives and make these bold accusations, break it down and look at the reality and put it in perspective because it's not that bad. It's a piece of cloth on your face. How, how tough is that? And you wash it every day so it's not dirty. Like underwear, wash it a lot. Or you should, right? 
After the break, it's not Halloween time just yet, but we have a great haunted house story for you. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Would you buy a haunted house? A homeowner in Lansingburg is hoping so. The home in question is the two-story Enslin Mansion on Fifth Avenue. It's drawn a lot of attention in recent years for its purported paranormal qualities. It's been studied by teams of paranormal investigators, featured on Discovery and TLC, and more recently gained attention for listings on Airbnb inviting thrill-seekers to stay in the bedrooms at the rate of $206 per night. Owner Michelle Bell says the house has nine resident ghosts. She says it also has the distinction of having played host to Gangster Legs Diamond back in the early 20th century when he was in town. Reporter Ken Crow recently toured the house for a story, and I spoke to him afterward about what he encountered. How old is this house? It dates back to 1890. Wow. Okay. So now you have gone to talk to the owner of this house who is selling it. So tell me about, you know, tell me about the experience that you had when you went there to report on this. Michelle Bell, who owns the house, when we were in the house, both uh, Michelle and I heard this, not a creak, which you would think from walking on floorboards from the 1890s, but a long like streaking sound. It came from one corner. We both identified it. She said, did you hear that? And I said, yeah. And she said, that wasn't a board. I said, no, boards creak. And we walked around and the boards creaked, but they didn't make that noise. I've been in plenty of houses in Lansingburg for my job. Most of them are been modernized. So you walk in and in the front parlor, there's still the original tin ceiling on the first floor. So wow. you, this building is practically untouched. It does have a modern kitchen within the confines of the 1890s design. The interior is very well preserved. So you get there and the bedrooms are where the action seems to be concentrated. In fact, that's why Michelle has rented them out as Airbnb stay in a haunted house. She does get, and that's where it's been in the press in England and around the world. It's been featured in some short films and on some TV uh, shows on, I think on the Discovery Channel was one of them. So tell me about the ghosts that are purported to haunt this house. Well, the nine ghosts, five of them are Michelle's relatives, her son who died young, she's seen there, and then her um, grandparents, great-grandparents. And then there's three men, 
one side named as Paul, don't know why they're there. And then there's a woman named Shirley who mysteriously was found in, at the foot of the basement stairs, dead. They have no idea what happened. So Michelle said to me, do you want to go downstairs? And I said, no. <laughs> Probably a good decision. <laughs> I've never seen such a steep set of basement stairs going from the first floor down. It was almost like climbing a ladder, not quite as steep. Our photographer, Lori Van Buren, went down. And if you check out the photos on timesunion.com, you should be able to see some of the photos that she took of where Shirley's body was found. Now, Michelle, and she's written a book about her experiences. So, you know, she's a fascinating woman to listen to. Why is she selling the house? She's no longer here, lives here. Her mother died in the house about a year or so ago. And she decided it's time to uh, not move on, but move with is what she said. And she said she'd like to sell it to a younger couple. She had had ideas of making it into a, like a bistro, sort of hearkening back to when her great-grandfather hosted Legs Diamond, who has lots of ties to Troy. So the Legs Diamond connection then, let's let's talk about that really briefly. Um, so the Legs Diamond connection, he once ate there? Is that the extent of he the He may connection? have eaten there more than once. He ate supper. They were serving meals in the back dining room off the kitchen. So that's where he ate. She said her, her, grand, her great-grandfather was connected. He wasn't a gangster. You know, Lansingburg was originally a village that joined Troy either in the late 19th or early 20th century, probably done quietly. And as we all know, if someone was running a dining place or a supper club, you know, those places come and go, particularly back then. Wouldn't necessarily have any record of it unless it popped up as a mention in a newspaper column from the period. So do you think this house is going to sell? Like it just in your estimation of, of what you know about the neighborhood and, and obviously the house has some, some unusual draws for people, but do you think that it's going to sell? At $444,444, no. It's too much unless somebody is, you know, you never know today's world of shoppers. It is a seller's market right now in housing. And uh, they did redo the front porch. So the front porch is brand new. And the back, there's the uh, carriage house or what we would call the garage now is there that something could be done with. You know, overall, it's in good shape. And there's an undeveloped attic. But now that's a little high, you know, unless someone is looking to go into business and maybe wants to exploit ghosts. I guess, can you exploit ghosts? I guess so. so. I'm pretty sure people have done it. I don't recommend it though. <laughs> so they have a way last... of coming back after you. Is she getting any offers? I talked to her about the day after it went up online. So she listed it for sale. She picked the number. I said, why did you pick $444,444? Because houses in Lansingburg on Fifth Avenue, where this is located, do not sell for this. This is almost three times as much. Well, this is a spiritual number. It has a meaning for Michelle. That's why she picked it. She said she's not planning to go below it. I know a big thing now is angel numbers, such as if you see the same number over and over again, there's a meaning to it. Your guardian angel is trying to contact you or guide you. So the 444,444 falls into the realm of it as a spiritual meaning for her. 
haunted houses are stories that we typically reserve for, you know, maybe a particular season of the year or, you know, under some other kind of unusual circumstances, kind of like a lighter featurey kind of story. So, I mean, what do you like covering stories like that? What are your thoughts about, um, you know, covering the supernatural, which is something that you can't necessarily get, you know, cold, hard confirmation backup facts like traditional like journalism? Uh, How do you what's your take on that? You're always looking for stories that are interesting to people. And I know that people like haunted houses. They're always fascinating. You always want to know more. A lot of people don't like to admit it, but they do have an interest in the paranormal. It's something that touches everyone. I think everybody, practically everybody in their family somewhere has a a ghost story hidden away. This is not the first time that you've covered a haunted house story. So tell me about your previous experience with that. Well, decades ago when I worked for a weekly paper as the news editor. I was a one-person staff of a now defunct Long Island dispatch in Amityville, New York. And if you can't guess where this is going. I know where this is going. <laughs> uh, I wrote about the Amityville Horror House. And partially it was because Hans Holzer, who died maybe 10, 15 years ago, was internationally known as the ghost hunter. Hans Holzer, the ghost hunter. And he had written a book about Amityville, which actually the second movie about the Amityville horror was based on his book. In case you're wondering, New York state law does not explicitly require sellers to disclose ghosts or paranormal activity in a unit. However, there is precedent for it. The famous so-called Ghostbusters ruling in 1991. In that, a state Supreme Court judge reversed the sale of a house in Rockland County after the buyer claimed he was not told the house was haunted prior to the sale. The court sided with the buyer, arguing that the fact that the seller had boasted of the house's paranormal reputation to national media a decade earlier qualified it as fraudulent misrepresentation of a property for sale. Essentially, though, the ruling had nothing to do with actual ghosts. It was that the seller was taking advantage of the buyer's ignorance. Outside of that case, though, caveat emptor tends to rule in New York. That is, buyer beware. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Ken Crow, Christy Gustafson-Barletti, and Pete DiMola for their reporting and contribution to this episode.